Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. pleased that Richard Fyde has been able to join us tonight to contribute the literary part of our second Eat, Drink and Be Literary dinner of the year. Now, I think as uh, many of you know, for more than a decade, Richard has presented his national radio show, Conversations, with Richard Feidler, uh, an in-depth hour-long interview program on ABC Radio, our ABC, uh, the most popular podcast in Australia. Followed closely, of course, by Alex Sloan. Oh. Yes. <laughs> and, oh. and of course, uh, it is the popu most popular uh, download for a reason. It's fascinating. And uh, I'm just going to take a little aside here to note that as a proud old brother, Richard has a pretty good understudy on conversations. Her name, Sarah Konoski, my younger sister. <laughs> I'll she's she's doing Thank such you. a good job, I might have to have her killed. Yes. <laughs> I heard that. Now, that actually is a good segue to Richard's uh, career because prior to becoming a national radio host, he was, as you know, at least as some of you know, famous in largely different circles as a founding member of the musical comedy trio, Doug Antony All-Stars, which I know some of you were also participants in the original genesis of that busking, what began as a busking group. It had its origins in our wonderful city when there was life in Garima Place. <laughs> before the lockout laws and all that sort of thing, when Canberra was just a town. And the Doug, Doug Antony All-Stars went on to enjoy international first and then eventually national success. <laughs> That's true, actually. <laughs> it's true. Mm. Um, and all of that uh, before uh, Richard's career as a broadcaster and now authorship of what I think is a, a wonderful book. It's, of course, what you would expect from an ANU alumnus uh, whose degree in uh, history and politics clearly established an excellent platform for his work in comedy, music, television, radio and writing. <laughs> uh, history plays a big part in Richard's first non-fiction book, Ghost Empire, a blending travel memoir with history as it follows his journey to Istanbul with his 14-year-old son, Joe, to uncover the history of Constantinople. And it happens that uh, they encountered in the same hotel another Australian family, amongst them Lewis, down here at the front, uh, who's just come to ANU as one of our Tuckwell scholars. Uh, so that's serendipity. Now, joining Richard in conversation uh, is eat, drink and belittery veteran and as I mentioned before, Canberra <laughs> identity, Alex Sloan. Uh, of course, all of us Canberrans know Alex's afternoon show. It is to afternoons on the ABC Triple Six, what Richard's Conversations is to mornings on ABC Radio. And as you know, as well as being deeply embedded in the Canberra community, Alex has worked internationally. She's proud to call Ainsley home, uh, and Graceo Airways, we're very pleased she's been able to uh, partner uh, Richard this evening in conversation. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Richard Feidler and Alex Sloan in conversation. And actually that's all true, Peter, thank you. And what Richard probably doesn't know is I got moved to afternoons because I was doing a longer conversation. So you have 
meant that I can get up later and sleep <laughs> in. I love this man for so many reasons. But yeah. Richard, you just, you walked in here tonight and you were absolutely full of glee and joy to I be know. back here. I am completely overcome. Um, I, I have the vaguest memory of stepping into this hall, uh, probably by mistake at some point during my undergraduate life. <laughs> and this is the most beautiful, it's, it's kind of, this is what Ikea wants to be when it grows up, this hall. <laughs> This is so beautiful, this space. It's absolutely so lovely and salubrious, and it's so lovely to see so many people here. And, and to tell the truth, I'm deeply touched. But I, 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 I do have to say that tonight is absolutely nothing like my undergraduate experience, <laughs> which was largely spent in one of the most depraved uh, bars in the history of the world, which was the ANU bar in the early 1980s. It was a completely different environment and a really vibrant but, slightly, but extremely filthy one. Um, I, there was a really vibrant punk rock scene here in the early 80s. Some of the best band gigs of my life took place at the ANU bar. Um, I have nothing but amazing memories of my four years I spent in Canberra as a student. I remember it primarily as a place where uh, there were very little places in the early 80s to go actually go out and hang out at, so you had to make your own fun. And so that's what people did. They started bands, they started theatre groups. Uh, everything was kind of self-devised, and if you couldn't do that, you'd busk on the streets. So, you know, when I, I remember when I said, told my friends I was moving to Canberra, they were going, oh, you'll be really bored. Um, <laughs> they had a much more boring time than I did. I was never bored for a moment. I loved my time here, you know, and I was kind of a little sor sorry and sad to leave. So it's lovely to be back. So thank you for having me back. <laughs> You met Rake at that bar too, didn't you? I met who, sorry? Rake. Um, no, I didn't know the guy who Rake is based on. I do remember Richard Roxburgh, though. He was, he was at AMU That's at the same I mean. time as me. Oh, him. Yeah. yeah. Oh, of course, yes. The guy that, yeah, uh, indeed. Richard Roxburgh was, I, I didn't really know, I sort of knew him on site, but I remember him directing a, an under, I can't remember the name of the undergraduate um, performance group here, but he was directing a production, a really degenerate production of Marat Saad, where the cast just slid into utter degeneracy <laughs> in a really ugly way. And people, several people emerged with major health problems at the end of that, of that <laughs> series, yes. So, Richard, to, to get to this great, big, and really fantastic book, and I hope you have all bought a copy because you're going to be very happy by the end of it, but it starts as this beautiful father and son journey. And when did you come up with the concept of... This is a time to do it, when Joe was 14. Well, he turned, my son had turned 14, and he'd always been interested in history, which was a source of really deep pleasure for me. Um, I, I had the history bug before I came to ANU, and I've had it ever since. And ever since pretty much Joe could form sentences, he started asking questions about history. And that's been a constant source of delight for me throughout his entire life. And at, at 14, I was thinking, well, he's leaving boyhood behind, and I tried to come up with this idea of a coming-of-age father-son adventure. Uh, you know, we Anglo-Irish Australians don't have long-standing ceremonies like Jewish people or Aboriginal people do. Um, you know, I, uh, I didn't really want to put a stubby into his hand and tell him to neck it, you know. I just... <laughs> his mother forbade that. And um, <laughs> so I thought, why don't we go on a history trip together and go out into the wide world? We currently live in Brisbane. Joe hates Brisbane. He can't wait to get out of Brisbane. So he wanted to see somewhere where the built environment was older than six months, essentially. And so we thought we'd go into the big wide world. And so we'd been listening to a lot of Roman history at that point. And when we sort of got to the end of the Western Roman Empire, we sort of kept right on going into Byzantium, which its true name really is the Eastern Roman Empire. And I conceived of this, this trip. We'd spend some time together, and this would be a, a coming-of-age thing. Now, it's since been explained to me, Alex, that, that the bar mitzvah uh, is a ceremony that is not held for the benefit of the child. It's held for the benefit of the bloody parents, who have to get used to the idea that their little darling is no longer a wee bairn anymore and will shortly become a fully-fledged adult, and they have to get used to that idea. And that's incredibly true. Um, so well, I've had a lot of lovely people say to me, oh, you're such a nice dad to take your son on a trip. It was really about me, really. Uh, <laughs> I selfishly just wanted to enjoy the last bit of his boyhood and go on this trip with him, uh, just the two of us. With your own love of history, 
do you do you remember the moment? What was it that sparked your own really deep interest in it? I, I think I was just picking up bits and pieces. I, my dad was a real autodidact, and so I'd, he had books, all, all sorts of uh, books of 20th century history on his, on his bookshelf, and I would ask him stories from that. Then I remember doing a bit of ancient history in early in, in high school, and then it sort of went into abeyance for a while. And then it came roaring back at uni, and then even more so once I left uni. I think the benefit of being here and uh, my undergraduate degree is that it kind of opened my eyes to a whole lot of things, which is what a liberal education is supposed to do. It wasn't vocationally directed, but as it turns out, I've used, as Peter said, my, my arts degree uh, all my life. For everything I've done, I've been able to draw on the things I learned here and have taken what... Uh, the, the beginnings of things here and made them part of my entire life. So it's, it's been an ongoing thing. It's so interesting, and you probably get these questions too from parents asking, should their children go and study journalism degrees? And I usually tell them to go and do history or philosophy or read everything. You are the perfect example. Uh, thank you. I completely agree. Oh, God. <laughs> I, uh, no, I mean, not about that. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. No, I mean about your earlier yes. point. Um, yeah, it's a little depressing when you meet new journalists who go, oh, I just want to be on TV. And <laughs> do you know anything yet before you go and talk about it? No, I don't know, I'll figure it out. Um, so yes, I, I so agree with your first point that <laughs> it's much better to have a grounding in those broader subjects of history and politics and philosophy. So. When you start to read this book and you talk about, and I, I had it in my mind, oh, you must have sat down and thought, how am I going to design this grand tour with my son? Mm -hmm. And you talk about the, the flickering lamp, which is a quote from Churchill, which is beautiful. Yeah, it's, um, it's a, I, I, I've got a um, William Manchester's multi-volume uh, biography of Winston Churchill, and uh, I stumbled on a lovely quote there from Churchill. That he, a narration he gave to the House of Commons, and uh, bizarrely enough, it was uh, on the death of Neville Chamberlain, his great rival, the man who you know, showed up at Munich and signed away the future of Czechoslovakia at that place. Nonetheless, he gave a generous oration, and he talked about history, and he referred to, he, he made a, in these beautiful phrases, and I don't know if I'm quoting this exactly right, but he said, history with its flickering lamp stumbles along the trail of the past, trying to reveal with pale gleams the passions of former days. Now, that's very Churchillian rhetoric, but it's the kind of thing that I just love, and that really, for me, describes the pleasure of history, which I don't think we talk enough about, do we? Um, there's, there's a bit of concern in the discipline of history about the pleasure of it. It's very hard to get historians to admit the real reason why they're into history. You can sometimes, after 19 million beers, get them to confess they're in it for the time travel. And that's why I wanted to write this book as well. I absolutely love the idea of inhabiting the, the mind space of someone living in Constantinople, in this case, a thousand years ago, when it was the greatest city in Europe and possibly the world. You say it's to push back melancholia as mm -hmm. well. Indeed. In fact, um, it's, it's interesting you should bring that up because I actually have a recollection of a moment here. I'm not sure I believe in epiphanies, I think, you know, they're everywhere at the moment, but I had the closest thing to one <laughs> in the Chifley Library, funnily enough. Uh, in my first couple of weeks here in Canberra, I didn't really know anyone. I knew a couple of people, but I was quite lonely. I spent a lot of time on my own just sort of hanging around the Chifley Library, um, which, which sounds, <laughs> seems really sad when I think about it. But, but I do remember feeling a bit gloomy, but then I sort of, I do recall seeing the rows and rows and rows and rows of books and having the thought that I would never get to the bottom of this. This is like an everlasting storehouse of amazing things to find out and to understand and to explore. And I think that's actually stood as a, for me anyway, as a, as a bulwark against depression and nostalgia as well. Because you say that history offers a defence against the sickly sweet temptations of nostalgia. Yes, I don't really like nostalgia. I think, I think nostalgia's fine, you know, when you're in a group of friends and you go, remember when we did this, when, you know, it's kind of fun. But when it's performed in the public space, it's disgusting. <laughs> it, it, it's always about, oh, times were simpler then. Bullshit, they weren't. 
They were not. Um, I, I can, I'm old enough now to remember things that appeared in pop culture and TV and comic books in the 1970s when people were saying, oh, times were simpler in the 1950s. What, with the Cold War, the world on the brink of nuclear annihilation? And in the 50s, there's pop culture where they say, things were simpler in the 30s. The Great Depression? <laughs> Are you kidding me? World on the brink of Stalinism and fascism? And in the 30s, you can find the same thing. Things were simpler in the 1914. The First World War, you know, nonsense. So this idea that things were simpler, it was a simpler time, is, is a really silly one, and uh, one that ought to be discarded, I think, and that children were more obedient and the culture was better. Ugh. It's a dangerous thought, I think. <laughs> so early on in the book, Richard, you give us the history of Rome in five paragraphs. Yes. Because <laughs> I want to speed it's on terrific. through it. They're terrific five paragraphs. <laughs> yeah. I, I just want to, rather than get, because you can, this is the story of the medieval Roman Empire, the one based in Constantinople. And then, of course, there's the ancient Roman Empire centred around Rome itself, and then later Milan and Ravenna. And most of us know something about ancient Rome, don't we? I mean, most of us know about... Julius Caesar and Octavian and Antony and Cleopatra and uh, Nero and Claudius, the stuttering emperor, but so little is known about Byzantium. So I could sometimes feel the tug of ancient Rome trying to draw me back to try and explain it. So I just wanted to deal with it and fast forward in five paragraphs the history of the Romans from the founding of this village in Latium, Latium uh, in the... Uh, in the 6th century, 7th century BC, and, and move it all the way up to the end of Romulus Augustulus, the last Western emperor. It's incredibly helpful. And then this, <laughs> and, and, well, actually, at the front of the book, there's, Richard gives us a great timeline. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, which, is, which is terrific. And I said to him, it's really helpful because it kind of gallops along um, the book and, and you get to, you know, you and Joe going to different places and I'm going, now, where are we up to now? So it's actually fabulous. The but story really starts in the book mm. with the foundation of Constantinople mm. by the Emperor Constantine, Constantine the Great, and it ends with the fall of the city to the Ottoman Turks in 1453 when Mehmed II arrived with a vast army and the biggest mm. cannon in the world. So that's, it's, that's an 1,100-year span it covers. But we, were, we learn a lot about Constantine. Now, tell us, give us a portrait of Constantine. Constantine the Great, um, as many of you people will know, is one of the truly world transformative figures. He's, he is uh, really in the company of Buddha, Jesus, and Muhammad as one of those rare figures who have transformed the entire world. Uh, because he did two things. The first thing was he founded the new Roman capital of Constantinople, took it away from Italy and brought it to the threshold of Europe and Asia. That was one thing. But the even larger achievement or deed was to take Christianity from being a minority Eastern cult and turn it into the majority religion of the Roman Empire. He Christianized the Roman Empire. In doing so, he Christianized Europe. And then later, the Americas were consequently Christianized. And Constantine is the reason why self-described Christian nation-states uh, came into being, which still endure to this day. Mm. And then there's a moment when, because Joe's questions are great, that's terrific in this book, and he asks you if you thought Constantine really did have a vision. Yes, well, he, he, um, the, the, later in life, he said the reason why he became a Christian or decided to pay tribute to the God of the Christians was because on the eve of a crucial battle on his way to the top, he, outside the gates of Rome, he claimed to have had a vision where he, was it a dream or a vision, it's a bit vague, where he saw above the sun the symbol of the Chi Rho, which looks like an X with a P in the middle of it. And those two letters form the first two letters in Greek of the word Christ. And above it was written in, in flames the, the, the words, by this sign shall you conquer. And the story goes that the following day he got his soldiers to paint the symbol of the Cairo on his shields and they won an unlikely victory at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. He entered Rome as its conqueror and surprised the Senate by refusing to honour the statue of Nike, the pagan goddess of victory. And instead he erected a statue to honour the God of the Christians. And it seems that he thanked the God of the... He was grateful to the God of the Christians for giving him that victory and making him emperor. 
But then, he's a, he's a funny bugger, Constantine, because he also erected these massively high 30-foot statues of himself looking a lot like Apollo. <laughs> so, he, if he became a Christian, it wasn't in the way, with like, it wasn't like he converted to Christianity. He was, it's probably fair to say he wanted to make it the majority religion and still be, and be great, express his gratitude to the God of the Christians. But he still kind of was happy to let a fair bit of paganism happen on the side. Mm. You, you, you come to describe him as a monstrously self-regarding creature. Yes, he was. He, he did not have a confidence problem. Uh, <laughs> he um, was pretty sure of himself. He, um, when he founded Constantinople, uh, the story goes, the legend goes, that he traced the boundaries of the city's first land wars himself by trailing his spear through the dirt. And when one of his minions called out behind him, Sire, how much further? Constantine replied, until he who walks before me stops walking. <laughs> Spooky. <laughs> You, I think, Richard, you're going to read us a little bit, yeah. and particularly about Constantinople, yeah. the city of Constantine. This is, this was, I wrote this right at the start of the book to explain the kind of glory of the city in its absolute, at its height, because this is a, a civilization that's largely been forgotten in the West. There are reasons for that, but it's good to remember how important this city was in its time, in its heyday. I'll just read this piece here from early in the book. It's called A Second Firmament. A thousand years ago, Constantinople was the greatest and richest city in Europe. It dwarfed its rivals in size, splendor, and sophistication. The city contained half a million souls, more than 10 times the population of London or Paris. At a time when Western Europe was ensnared in a dark age of poverty and illiteracy, the people of Constantinople enjoyed the pleasures of the metropolis. They bought exotic goods in the marketplaces of the city's great marble squares and cheered for their teams at the Hippodrome, the world's biggest stadium. Students attended universities and law academies. There were schools for female education and hospitals with women doctors. The city's libraries conserved precious manuscripts by Greek and Latin authors, ancient works of philosophy, mathematics and literature that had been lost or destroyed elsewhere. Constantinople was the greatest wonder of its age. It was an imperial capital, an emporium, a shrine, and a fortress. Venetian merchants, arriving after a long sea voyage, would see the gold and copper domes of the skyline appear out of the Bosphorus fog like an hallucination. First-time visitors were stunned by the monumental scale and beauty of the city. They reacted like European peasants arriving by boat into Manhattan, not quite believing the impossible metropolis looming in front of them. Traders came to Constantinople from all over Europe, from Asia and Africa. Russian galleys cruised down from the Black Sea, laden with fish and honey and beeswax and caviar. Amber was brought from the shores of the Baltic Sea to be exchanged for gold or silk. Spices from China and India were carried overland into the city and sold on to Western Europe. Constantinople was a holy city. Its majestic churches and monasteries housed the most important sacred relics of Christendom, the crown of thorns, fragments of the true cross of Christ, the bones of the apostles, and a portrait of Christ believed to have been painted from life by St. Luke himself. Pilgrims came to Constantinople by the old Roman road down through Thrace. Passing through the Carizian Gate and the land walls, the pilgrim would push his way through the crowds on the Mesa, the city's broad central avenue, passing shops and colonnaded squares paved with marble and tenement blocks. Beggars and prostitutes would loiter in doorways while a holy fool, smeared with grime and filth, displayed the scars of his mortification to jeering children. The crowds on the Mesa would part for a procession of chanting priests parading a wooden icon followed by a train of ecstatic believers hoping to catch a glimpse of the icon weeping miraculous tears or dripping blood. The emperor's procession among his people would bring city's traffic to a standstill. Heralds with dragon banners would appear, strewing flowers on the path ahead, 
followed by an entourage of imperial guardsmen, clerics, and ministers. The voices of a choir would then lift up and sing, behold the morning star, in his eyes the rays of the sun are reflected. Finally, the emperor would appear, swathed in crimson and gold silk, his feet clad in the distinctive thigh-high purple boots reserved for the occupant of the throne. <laughs> so that's what Constantinople was like. <laughs> and this is the kind, it, it inspired this kind of overwhelming sense of wonder amongst visitors. One of the favorite stories I encountered from the primary sources is a diary of, a, of an ambassador to Constantinople, a man called Liotprand of Cremona, who was the uh, ambassador for the King of Italy, King Berengar of Italy. And Liotprand writes of how he arrived by galley into the Golden Horn of Constantinople, walked up the hill towards the great palace of the Caesars, which sits on the point known as Acropolis Point, a bit south of where Topkapi Palace is now. And he was brought through the Chalk Gate and into an antechamber. And he writes that there, in the antechamber, he was hoisted up onto the shoulders of two eunuchs, who then carried him aloft into the emperor's octagonal throne room. And he writes, the first thing that he saw, and this thing has been verified by other sources too, the first thing he saw was a gilded mechanical tree. And on the branches of the tree, he saw clockwork birds, each of them emitting birdsong according to its own species. Then he was brought before the emperor, who was sitting on a throne, dressed in this beautiful brocaded silk, embroidered with rubies and diamonds and pearls. And on either side of the emperor's throne, he wrote, were two golden mechanical lions, whose mouths opened and shut and roared, and whose tails banged up and down mechanically. And he was a, you know, agog. And he did what was required by protocol, which was to kneel down and prostrate himself three times in front of the emperor. And he wrote that when he put his head up, the emperor was gone, because the throne had shot up 30 <laughs> feet into the air, and the emperor had changed his robes. This is what Constantinople was. People would go to the Hagia Sophia, the most beautiful building in the world, which I think is still the most beautiful building in the world, and be overcome by the, the holiness of the place. And then they'd see this, all these kind of mechanical parlor tricks. And the idea was to bring them together under the Orthodox faith and to make them so impressed with Roman power, they would never question it. And how long did this continue? What happened? What happened to it? Well, what went wrong is, is, is kind of almost unbearably tragic. The fall of Constantinople happens in two major stages. The first thing that went wrong was, if you like, was the uh, sack of Constantinople by the Fourth Crusade. Now, the Fourth Crusade, for my money, is one of the most low-down, disgusting, foul stories of greed, incompetence, naked ambition, and uh, like I had to have a shower after I wrote that, that <laughs> chapter. The Fourth Crusade, knights uh, from France and Germany and Italy who arrived and in Venice, got the help of the Venetians, and the Venetians, led by a 90-year-old blind doge of Venice, Enrico Dandolo, beguiled and kind of manipulated them into attacking Constantinople itself. And this was the first time it had been ever invaded. And the, the Crusaders tore through the city streets, stealing everything they could. They broke into the Hagia Sophia. A camp prostitute climbed on top of the throne of the patriarchs and sang bawdy songs. They brought in donkeys to carry away the icons, all this stuff. And most of the stuff ended up in Venice. The Venetians were the real beneficiaries of all this. I, I think probably quite a few people here today have been to, uh, to Venice and seen St. Mark's Basilica. You know, you know those four horses that sit above the portico there in the entrance? Stolen from the Hippodrome in Constantinople. Stolen. The statue of the four emperors, the Tetrarchs. Stolen from Constantinople. The marble columns on the portico there. Stolen from Constantinople. When the Crusaders and the Venetians brought all their stolen loot together, uh, Geoffrey de Villardouin, one of the Crusaders, wrote, it was enough to fill three churches. And when they crowned a Latin emperor of Constantinople, they dropped a ruby in his lap the size of an apple. 
that's the kind of wealth that was taken. So afterwards, they regained, the, the Byzantines regained their throne, but the city was never the same afterwards. It was a sad, shrunken relic of its former self. But the thing about it was, though, the city still had the Roman name attached to it, the glamour of that, the prestige of the Roman name, of that incomparable empire. And the thinking even then was that to take the throne of Constantinople was to take the throne of the world. And there was a prophecy attributed to Muhammad himself, in a hadith, where Muhammad is thought to have said, one day the Muslims will take Constantinople, how great will that leader be and how glorious will that army be? And this inspired caliphs of Arabia and sultans, uh, Turkish sultans, again and again to try and take the city. So this is what made it a thing of desire for the Sultan of the Ottoman Turks. And the taking of that city, the final siege, is one of the most poignant and sad and dramatic stories that uh, I, I think I've, I've, I've ever come across. And uh, to, even today I sort of feel this enormous sympathy for the last of the Roman emperors, who was the last person to defend the city. Um, it's one of the most extraordinary stories I've ever encountered, that story, yeah. It's all in the book. Just, <laughs> Richard, it was just so wonderful. Um, from that beautiful reading to that description, tell me about when you and Joe arrived in Istanbul. Yeah, well, we, we arrived at late at night and I remember we checked into this beautiful hotel, it's where we met Lewis and his family, and um, a bit later on, but when we, after we checked in, it was late at night and we thought, oh, we'll try and find some food somewhere. I remember going out, following the instructions to this restaurant, and we sort of followed a few winding streets, and there it was, it was the middle of winter, the Hagia Sophia, and there was no one around, it was about you know, 10 o'clock at night, and it was eerie, it looked like, I think I write it, looked like a kind of a, a giant sort of on its haunches preparing to stand up. To go inside that building, it's, it's an electrifying experience, I think. I, I was at once certain it was the most beautiful building I've ever been in in my life. So th that was our first encounter in it. That was one of the things we wanted to do. The second thing we really wanted to do, apart from going to the Hagia Sophia, was to walk along the land walls of Constantinople. If you imagine the uh, city was like, um, uh, it's like a stubby thumb projecting into the waters of the Sea of Marmara. So it was surrounded on water by three sides. So it could only ever be approached by an invading army on, on, by land. And so the Romans built the most elaborate and complex and formidable land defences in the ancient and medieval world, these triple-layered land walls here to keep invading armies at bay. Once they put it up, Attila the Hun came through the area and went, bugger it, too hard. Forget it, I won't try it. Uh, gigantic armies of the Arab Caliphate tried and pushed against it and met with disaster again and again. So Joe and I wanted to see this and to see what it was like. And so we spent a whole day walking the entire length of the land walls from the Sea of Marmara to the Golden Horn, the city's beautiful harbour. It took us a whole day and there was no one there. It's like a, not a touristy thing at all because it goes through an Istanbul slum. So there's, it, it was, we sort of had it all to ourselves for this day. And we could do that thing which we wanted to do, which is to put ourselves in the mind of a, person, a, a citizen of Constantinople to stand up on the walls, to imagine what it would look like to have a vast Turkish army confronting them the whole length of the land walls. And you made some incredible discoveries, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, early on in the walk, one of the first things we saw, we came into this open area, and I saw this bricked-up archway. It was reasonably nondescript, and there were some broken stones in front of it. And I looked at it for a bit, and then I said to Joe, oh, my God. That's the Golden Gate. This is the former Golden Gate of the Caesars, the ceremonial entrance into Constantinople reserved for emperors returning to the city in triumph. A thousand years ago, it was clad in white marble. It had bronze and gilded doors. It had golden elephants on top and beautiful gilded inscriptions above it. And in the seventh century, the emperor Heraclius brought through a team of Persian elephants after his victory over the Persians. And now it's just this forgotten space. It's this bricked up archway. There's nothing to draw attention to it. It's forgotten and decrepit. And it just, it brought to mind, you know, the Shelley poem, Ozymandias, the, the, the sense of the great waste of time. And it was terribly poignant. And, and it, kind of induced this, it kind of induced this real feeling of melancholy amongst Joe and I for the rest of our walk. But you kind of also love 
that moment in history about our own existence, don't you? That's yeah, I kind of enjoyed that melancholic feeling too, in that way. <laughs> you know, melancholy is not quite the same thing as sadness, it's a sweet sadness, isn't it? And it, it, it really brought home, I suppose, I don't know, you always think your own mortality, I think, in those moments, don't you? When you see something that was once the biggest deal in the whole wide world, and now it's just nothing, a forgotten bit of a Turkish slum. That's, that's history. But it's a reminder to us all. We're here for a blip. Mm, that's are, right, yeah, we are. Live it the best way. There's a wonderful moment in the book with Joe when you go to eat Pando Kamek. Oh, yeah. Would you like me to read that part? I, I think so, and, and particularly because Joe's very impressed with your language skills. So. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, we, um, we had this moment where we um, were at the uh, Sultan Ahmet Mosque, also known as the Blue Mosque, uh, one morning, and that sits sort of directly across from the Hagia Sophia. And we went outside, and this is where I pick up the narrative here. Outside the mosque, Joe is intrigued by a cart selling something called Salep. I order two cups, and we are presented with a creamy hot drink. I hand a paper cup to Joe, who takes a long, slow sip. He closes his eyes and smiles, like he's just found something he was looking for. Right, he says emphatically. We're having salep every day while we're here. <laughs> a salep is a gooey mixture of milk, rice flour, sugar and rose water. But the crucial ingredient is derived from the tubers of wild orchids, which are washed, boiled, dried and then ground. The milky concoction is poured into a cup and garnished with cinnamon or crushed pistachios. Turkish people claim that salep is a medicinal drink effective against all kinds of complaints, including bronchitis and heart disease, but Joe and I are happy to drink it for the sweet contentment it brings on a cold morning. That night, we tell Yassine, the desk clerk at the hotel, how much we love Salep. Salep's no big deal, he says. A really great thing to have in Istanbul is Kaimak. Yassine scrawls a name on a post-it note. Pando Kaimak. The best Kaimak is here, he says quietly. The next day, Joe and I walked down to Eminonu to catch a ferry to the crowded inner-city suburb of Besiktas on the European shore of the Bosphorus. Besiktas is a gentrified shopping precinct with kebab shops, mobile phone outlets and burger joints. Joe and I find our way to the cobalt blue shopfront. This modest cafe is an institution in Istanbul, like Pellegrini's in Melbourne or Vizelka in New York City. Run down but spick and span, informal but charismatic. The clientele is a mix of old-timers and young Turkish hipsters. Joe and I take a seat at a marble-top table as an ancient man shuffles forward, tentatively carrying a plate of eggs. This is the proprietor, Pando, a man in his 90s with close-cropped hair and white whiskers. Pando and his wife, Donna, are some of the few remaining Greek Christians in Istanbul. Clustered on the walls are framed photos of Pando's proud ancestors. Mustachioed men with burgundy fezzes perched on their heads. Pando's Cafe and Cream Shop was founded in 1895. He was born and raised in this cramped two-story building. As a boy in the 1920s, he met Ataturk, the hero of Gallipoli and the founder of modern Turkey, who came by and shook his hand. The cafe serves a delicious breakfast of fried eggs and sausages washed down with tea or Turkish coffee. But people mostly come here for the kaymak, which I discover is a kind of clotted cream formed from buffalo milk. It's a traditional Turkish food originating from Central Asia. Doner comes to our table. She wears an apron over her black cardigan and her gray hair is pulled back into a tight bun. She bows her head with a degree of old world formality and smiles at us, ready to take our order. Now, I have no Turkish, so I grin apologetically, point at items on the menu and say querulously, Kaimak, Turkish coffee. Donna smiles. Avec du sucre? She inquires. <laughs> A little taken aback, I reply, uh, yes, I mean, oui. <laughs> She's speaking beautiful French to me. This lovely Greek grandmother in Istanbul. Vous êtes américain? She inquires politely. No, madame, I stutter, summoning my schoolboy French. Nous venons de l'Australie. Ah, mon mari a une cousin à Melbourne. Oh, je suis né à Melbourne. 
she jots down our order. Alors, deux plates de kaimak et café turc avec du sucre. Merci, madame. She smiles and withdraws. Joe is a gog. <laughs> We've been here all this time, and you speak fluent Turkish. <laughs> I arch an eyebrow enigmatically. It's hard to impress a teenage son. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I might open it up to questions very soon. I'm sure you... Go right ahead. Ask me anything. Ask me about my sordid past. <laughs> Ask me about Canberra. <laughs> just while we're just on Joe, he at, asks you about the cult of Ataturk and you're kind of ushering him out of a <laughs> shop and go into hushed tones. Tell yeah. Us well, Joe's kind of really fascinated with totalitarianism and is really into like the kind of sheer intense weirdness of Kim Jong-il and... And anyway, he kept on noticing that there were portraits of Ataturk everywhere. And they say that the cult of Ataturk is the longest-running cult of the personality in, in history. It's been going for a, more, nearly a century now. And we were in this mobile shop, phone shop trying to get a SIM card, and, and there was a portrait of Ataturk. And Joe just said quite, you know, matter-of-factly, Dad, why are there pictures of this guy absolutely everywhere? <laughs> and you know what? All those tour guides, they tell you, just speak of Ataturk respectfully in public places. Don't be rude about him. Uh, Turkish people take deep offense. You can actually get arrested. And so I'm going, just, 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 just we'll talk about it outside, okay? Because I'm worried he's going to, you know. So anyway, we go outside. He goes, so what's all this about? And, and I said, well, yeah, he's really popular. He's still really loved and admired. So he said, so is he like the Kim Jong-il of, <laughs> of Turkey? And I said, no, no, the cult of the personality actually kind of started after he died. He's actually, uh, he's actually a pretty good guy. And he said, well, if you're not so worried, Dad, why are you whispering? <laughs> <laughs> so. Question, Catherine, just behind you. Grace, just here. talk like karaoke. Yeah. Oh, I've never done karaoke. Goodness, there we go. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. That was absolutely fantastic. Thank you. I, I came to um, know about Byzantium because of art history at school, so I came oh, from a different direction. And I, I, I did a bit of that with Sasha Grishin here, actually, too, yeah, in uh, First yeah. Year Fine Art. Yeah. I was well before his time here. <laughs> anyway, um, and I've been to Istanbul, so that was doubly fantastic. But I want to ask you, I, I, sorry, I should also say, I love your concept of people liking history because of the time travel aspect. Thank you. And I would love to know who you would like to try and travel Good back question. to be. Wow. But That's not nice Constantine. Well, as it happens, we went to Rome just before we went to Istanbul, and I had this fantastic guide, a, a wonderful woman called Danielle, who was a classics um, scholar. And, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. And we had this, we had lunch after she took us through the Imperial Forum, and we sort of had this conversation about how much of your life would you surrender for a day walking around the Imperial Forum in the time of Augustus, for example? And we went, oh, I said, I give up a month. At least you had a month. A year, <laughs> she said. So we had that kind of a conversation. And where would you go if you could surrender a whole chunk of your life for one day somewhere? Where would that be? And that thought was kind of guiding me as I was writing that opening passage trying to place myself in that moment as someone in the city of Constantinople. I was always, I've really tried to write this to try and inhabit that mindset of people at the time, because they lived in what they thought and knew to be the greatest city in the world, and they, it was the Christ-guarded city, the capital of the world, and they, the people there really believed that they were the central actors in a cosmic drama, and their prophecies of the apocalypse told them that when the hordes of Gog and Magog would come swarming over the city from the badlands of the east, then that would mean the end of the world. But at the moment when the hordes stopped, came towards the Hagia Sophia, the prophecy predicted that an avenging angel of the Lord would appear with a sword and cut them all down. And on that day in 1453, of course, the Turks did break through. And families, hundreds of families, ran into protection, for, into the Hagia Sophia for protection. And whether they believed this prophecy or not, I don't know. A couple of uncanny things had come true. The Turks had actually first been able to crack through a gate 
that had been mentioned in these prophecies, which was really weird and just a bit uncanny. But of course, as these families in the mid-morning were waiting, waiting for the avenging angel of the Lord to disappear, you can imagine what that terror is like. They were conducting the very last Christian service in the Hagia Sophia, and the angel never came, of course. And can you imagine the terror of being in that church as the Janissaries have run up into the courtyard and, you know, bang, bang, bang on the door? That moment, as it's described, is, is like a moment of perfect terror, I think. Not that day. <laughs> Other questions? Other questions? Just... Oh, come on. Come on, yeah. Oh, over here. Good. Thank you. Susie. <laughs> uh, Richard, I'm, um, I'm here because I love your art conversations. They make me go walking. i just completely obsessed by them. Thank you, because they make me sit a lot, actually. <laughs> so as you get well, hip fitter, I get more unhealthy. So. <laughs> I kind of want, I'm really fascinated by the way you interview people and you get into their heads and you draw things out of them that I imagine they probably didn't realise they would tell you. And I'd, I'd be interested to know in the process of flipping it and you writing this book and how those two parts of your, um, your profession uh, work Come against together. or together yeah. or how do they benefit each other? Well, in putting together, trying to configure an hour of a conversation, I think my show isn't really properly named. It's not really a conversation because I actually like to keep my mouth shut unlike what I'm doing tonight sadly. Um, but normally I actually like to let the guests talk. I don't see it as a kind of a 50-50 thing at all. I, I like to talk for about maybe 5% of the time um, and, and let them talk. So what I, I see it as more of a kind of guided storytelling. I, I, I do a lot of research. My producers do a lot of research. We, we talk about it and we think about how we're going to make the uh, work for listeners as a, a narrative arc. It's really a form of storytelling, bringing all these random events in someone's life and giving them some shape so that they can seem to make a kind of sense one way or another. So that's what I've done here really. I sort of went looking for stories like the way I normally do for looking for people with stories most of the time. And, and I, I, one thing I have learned from writing a book though, this is a bit di different process, is that uh, I think I've heard Neil Gaiman say something similar to this, is that if you ask for stories in, and you, you have to ask for them for the right way, but if you do ask them the right way, they will really come right up to you and sit on your lap. They come right forward. A couple of moments to, in order to structure the narrative right, you know, so I don't make it all history, history, history. So you have all these other little folk tales and little nuggety things like the, the true origin of Santa Claus is in this book, the origin of the fork and the dinner cutlery is in this book as well, the origin of Nike sneakers is in this book, the origin <laughs> of the Starbucks logo is in this book. It all comes from Byzantium, um, funnily enough. Uh, and it, I, I was looking for things like that, and I need this here. And if you sit very still, and then just look in the right place, it, it sort of comes right up to you and sits in your lap. It's funny, it's funny that process. There's a, it's a little bit of an uncanny thing going on, and I think it, what it really is is the, the intuition, the subconscious mind at work solving problems for you. So really, the thing, the correlation there, I suppose, is, is a kind of a desire to find beautiful stories, fascinating stories that are, I find interesting, troubling, weird, compelling, appalling, all those things that engage the imagination and the sympathies. Over here. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. I'm here because I love storytelling and, and uh, your stories sound fabulous, so I Thank can't you. wait to read it. Um, but this is a story that, that you have um, uh, with your son on board on this trip. And I'm just wondering, I'm assuming your son's read it. <laughs> and I'm just actually, actually, I read it to him. All oh, right. I read, oh, good. I read could... every bit of it to him as I wrote, as I wrote it, just to check stuff with him. I, I right. actually once I'd finished a passage, I'd say, "Is that how you remember it?" And he'd go, eh. "Or I'd see the history. I'd read it to him to see if he was enjoying it." Yeah. Well, I'm interested in the, in the storytelling from from the lens of your your son. Um, you know, what sort of out of all the stories you've got in the book, which ones resonated with him the most? The fall the fall of Constantinople in 1453. There are so many strange and uh, powerful and moving moments within, moving parts within that larger story. Um, because the people in Constantinople came under this psychic assault as this last siege was taking place. There was not enough people to defend the walls. 
the, they had the Turks arrived, like I said, with the biggest cannon in the world, which was punching holes in their fabled Theodosian walls that had previously defended the city. And the last emperor was actually a, a figure, a tragic figure, who'd suffered terrible personal loss, but nonetheless had incredible fortitude and resilience and inventiveness. Um, he put up a magnificent defense. And then there's Mehmed, the conqueror, the leader of the Ottoman Turks. He's a fascinating figure as well. Um, part absolute poet, composed his own poetry, quoted poetry when he entered the great palace of the Caesars for the first time, but a man so completely ruthless, he uh, murdered all his brothers so that they couldn't provide a threat to his throne. He just said, so well, that's what's required for the stability of the empire. So all those factors, these, these two amazing fi fi figures meet one another in this, in this final conflict, this apocalypse is what it turns out to be. But then all these weird things happen in Constantinople in this last period. About the third or fourth night out before the final invasion, St. Elmo's fire was seen swirling around the dome of the Hippodrome. It went up the top of the dome, up the spire, and then winked out. Lights were seen in the, shrub, in the uh, trees, the forests behind uh, the walls, which Mehmed's people saw as well. Weird uh, astronomical things took place. There was a partial eclipse, which turned what they'd expected to be a full moon into a crescent moon. Now, that's the symbol of Islam. Can you imagine being a Christian in Constantinople, seeing that in the sky? The weird atmospheric conditions amazingly have been explained in recent years by a NASA scientist who noted that a gigantic volcano exploded in the, in the Pacific the year before the final siege, throwing up vast amounts of dust and debris into the Earth's atmosphere uh, for the following year. All these crops failed, there was hunger, starvation, and unrest, but also weird and strange electrical atmospheric conditions but to the people in Constantinople, they concluded that God had left their city, that they had committed mortal sins in agreeing to ally themselves with the Catholic Church in order to get the Catholic Church's help. So there was this absolute state of psychic agony over what do we do? Do we join the Catholic Church in, order, in the hope they might send soldiers to help us defend our city? Or what does that matter if we're going to condemn our own souls to everlasting fire? This was truly believed and truly worried about. So the final moments of anguish are very, very powerful. And that's the thing that Joe liked the most. And, and, and it was still the most nearest run thing. The final siege, it happened in three waves. And I won't go to details now, it's, it's, it, um, but it, it was the nearest run thing, despite the Romans of Constantinople having everything against them. I think up the back, yeah. Yes, hi Richard. I'm just wondering to what extent the Doug Anthony All-Stars helped or hindered your career in this book? <laughs> <laughs> oh, probably neither, I think. Um, uh, no, helped. And the reason why it helped was we were always on tour. I spent a large part of my 20s sitting in the back of a filthy, stinking Tarago, you know, driving between places like Orange and Dubbo or, you know, Rockhampton to Mackay. And... I just read a lot. I just read so much in those times because there's nothing else to do. So I read, I read lots and lots of history in that time and a bit of biography and a bit of fiction, as, quite a bit of fiction as well, and use that, use that as an opportunity to read quite a few of the great classics, which I always promised I'd do, uh, literary classics. And so I kind of got a second um, education, a second undergraduate education in the back of that stinky Tarago just to avoid conversation with those dreadful men. There was always a lot of philosophy going on. Oh, thought? tons of philosophy, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Any more questions? How are we going? Are we good? Uh, going back to your introductory remarks, you talked about the rite of passage, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, referenced Jewish culture and Aboriginal culture. Could you comment on that aspect of your relationship with your son and that rite of passage between father and son. Yeah, it was, again, it was the bittersweet feeling. Um, he, I could feel him getting a bit, bit older and not being such a little boy anymore and um, he was starting to shoot up uh, and he, he sort of came up to, I don't know, head shorter than me at that point. And you could still hold him like he's your kid at that point, you could still hug him and hold him like that. Now he's um, 17 and he's six foot four, uh, six foot one, I should say, tall as me, 
And now I sort of hold him like a, like a brother. It's a different thing. And we talk differently too. It's much more uh, of an even, even thing now. And I predicted this would happen on that very trip. And there was a moment in Rome when we were in Rome and uh, we were sort of going out for dinner and we walked past this really interesting looking whiskey bar and I said to him, oh, I wish you were four years older so we could go in there and get hammered, you know, and just tell funny stories to one another and, you know, be men together and do, do all that. But hey, he's 14, that's not appropriate, is it? Um, no, not at all. And <laughs> so I was kind of feeling it backwards and forwards like that. And... Um, but it's a different thing now. These things evolve and change, and it's, it's, it's a different, I'm in a different phase of my relationship with him now, which is just as lovely. Um, but, you know, I don't think 17-year-olds listen to their fathers with quite the same deference <laughs> as they do when they're 14. Any other? Just one more, I think, and then... Um, at what point did you decide to write a book about your travels with your son? I mean, I, obviously you didn't do it from the beginning, or maybe you did. I had the inkling I'd want to write a book about this. I, I had, I, I, I was, um, it was quite emotional the whole time I was there, actually. There was a moment when um, I kind of almost lost the plot, actually, because I, I was, we went on to get on a, a tram at one point. Istanbul has these beautiful, gleaming new trams, and we wanted to go and see the Tower of Galata on the other side of the Golden Horn, and, and we the tram stopped and all these passengers filed out. But as they were filing out, all these other passengers were pushing their way in at the same time. And we thought, oh, it's a bit rude. I'll, I'll teach my son good manners. Wait till everyone to get off and then we'll get on. But I, so I pushed, I got on, but then the doors closed and he was there on the platform. <laughs> and I jammed my arm in the door and the door wasn't gonna open again. And that's why they were pushing in so hard. It kind of made sense then. And I looked at him and he looked at me and I, I, all I could do was shout at him, uh, don't move, I'll be back. And then the doors closed and the tram whisked off and I left my 14-year-old son alone in a Turkish city on a tram platform. And, and you know, I've been in, you know, complicated and dangerous, difficult scrapes travelling all over the world, but, and this was a fairly minor thing, but I, I really began to panic on board the tram. And, you know, Istanbul people were so lovely. They were really lovely. They saw what had happened and they said, you'll be okay, your boy will be fine, it'll be okay. You can get off here at uh, Kadikoy, you get in change, go under the underpass, come back, you'll be okay. People will look after him, this is a good place. And, and I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I got off the tram, ran under the underpass, came back, came back again and, um, and he was fine. But I wasn't fine. <laughs> he was fine, he's saying, oh yeah, no, it was fine. There was a nice per couple of people looked after me and it was, it was all fine, but I was going, you know, I was gasping and I thought like I was going to have a heart attack. How was I going to explain to my wife, oh, you know, where's Joe? Oh, yeah, that. Um, I kind of lost him on a tram platform. I expect he'll get along all right. Um, so, so I was in this kind of quite emotional state and I thought, maybe I, and I did want to write something vaguely historical and um, about our journey to inter intertwine the personal story with the history and how I was telling history to him. So that, um, that, that was the, the germ of the idea was there while we were there and evolved more after I spoke to a friend of mine who's a, a brilliant author, Kari Gieselson. He said, well, this is, you know, it sounds like this is the book you should write. And he kind of helped me see what was right in front of my face, actually. And, and so that, that the outcome was the book as a result of that. And maybe just to, to finish off, Richard, and it was something that Anna actually asked you because at the book, you, you, you mused that that rite of passage when children grow up and you be, sort of look up to your children and you think perhaps Joe might take you on a trip with yes. him one day. And Anna asked you, where would you like him to take you? Oh, where would, oh sorry, I misheard your question. Um, well, I don't know, that's the thing. I want him to show me something I've never heard of. Um, no pressure, Joe. That's all right. No, no pressure. But, you know, the, there's the world. There's this, like I say, you'll never get to the bottom of the world, will you? There's so many places and things to go and see. So I expect one day, hopefully, if he doesn't find my company too tiresome, he might endure bringing his dad, dad along and showing me something that I don't even know about. I mean, at 17, he's already much better plugged into popular culture than I am. Um, and so maybe there'll be this whole thing I don't even know about. I just hope he does consent to take me along at some point. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Richard. Thank Piper. you. Thank you, Alice. <laughs>
We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.